This is Tom. Tom visits lots of islands. But now that the Libertarian Party's paid referral program is ending, he might only be able to visit a few. For just a dollar a day, you can help Tom visit lots of islands. Learn more at lpmesiscaucus.org and on this episode of the Fakertarians podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of the Fakertarians podcast. I'm your host, John Hudak, along with Jeremy Kantorowitz, Kevin Shaw, one of my sock accounts, our tech guy, and Archie Flower. Today we have on... Uh, as a guest, Daniel, and I'm not going to try to pronounce your last name, so I'll let you. I'll let you pronounce that, so I don't butcher it. Sorry, John. Nobody can get it. Elogudin. It's very hard to pronounce Russian. We have Daniel Elogudin on today. He's going to talk a little bit about his political journey over the last year or so, and then honestly, whatever else we feel like talking about. So, Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm good. What about yourself, John? Pretty good. So. Just starting, for anyone who doesn't know anything about you, like tell us a little bit about yourself politically. And I mean, we'll get into your journey and all that and how you've changed politically over maybe the last year, but just tell us about yourself in general with that. All right, well, um, I am a market anarchist. I'm a mutualist, which is a distinction that I'm going to get into a little bit later. Basically, we're the left wing of market anarchism, and we focus more less on the vulgar competition that we see today and more on cooperation. I run a mutualism group on Facebook called Free Market Mutualism, and we have basically all the writers from the Center for a Stateless Society in there, including Roderick Long, Sean Wilbur, Corey Massimino, Nathan Goodman, host of others. We even managed to get Stephen Kinsella in there, which is another story I have to get into later. But um, yeah, that's, in terms of an intro, that's pretty much what I can give you. So about a year ago, maybe it was uh more recent but i remember you like kind of being like more of like a mises caucus guy uh i know you were in that group i think you got kicked out of there at one point so like twice twice, twice. that's <laughs> that's impressive <laughs> I've, I've probably done that too but <laughs> but just tell us about kind of how you've changed and what made you change like what made you go from being a fan of the mises caucus and that kind of libertarianism in general to what you're or where you're at now. Okay, so where do I start? Um, I feel like I'm not alone here when I say the whole Ron Paul craze got us into libertarianism. I feel like that's just a common thing. A yeah, lot of people in America got into anarchism and libertarianism to Ron Paul. So he was just kind of like this untouchable force that like you just had to worship. And like that kind of brought me towards like Mises caucus style beliefs, you know, listening to like people like Tom Woods and, you know, Ron Paul and Dave Smith, but um, just in a general sense, I was like a classic, like typical, like Paul Bot, like, end of fed, this and that in five <laughs> seconds. But I was also like a pretty like well-read Rothbardian too. Like apart from like liking Ron Paul, I also read a lot of Rothbard when I was like nineteen twenty. So I was, I thought I was pretty consistent in my like libertarianism, but like. I never really explored anything to the left of me, you know, because, like, everything to the left of, like, wanting to take away welfare is just, like, communism. So it's like, yeah. 
Anyone else want to step in with some questions, or do you, want, you guys want me to keep going? Well, yeah, because like I, re- I remember you popping. I, I, when I first saw you, like kind of just pop up. Um, I think it was the police abolition and racial justice group, and I remember you asking, like, why do we have to agree with the Democrat Party here? It was, <laughs> and it was just like. I don't think you lasted very long in the group initially. Oh no, I lasted um, one day. I lasted one whole day in there because I thought it was like I thought they were for real. I was like, "Yo, what the oh. fuck?" I didn't know libertarians <laughs> like Democrats. You know, I just fucking I thought we hated Democrats. I thought we were trying to own the libs and shit. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I just, yeah, I remember seeing that. I'm like, oh, you're not, you're not going to last long. And then, well, no. and then you popped up in Fakertarians discussion group and, um, you know, definitely, um, well, you're you know, still around. So, um, so obviously you lasted longer, longer there, but I kind of remember you going from, you know, this, oh, Austrian economics is everything to kind of, um, you know, just kind of, kind of down a path and, Gosh, what probably over what six six seven months I would say, um, you know, you definitely you definitely had a lot of your, you know, your your views and and you know expanded and changed and you know what what kind of led you you know down that path what what kind of gave you that kick to to really go there. So I'm gonna say that it was really the whole George Floyd thing that really kicked it off. I feel like that's what really started sending like people in the Libertarian Party and people who espouse Libertarian views in two different directions, if you know what I mean. There's people who went left from there, people like me, and there's people who consolidated in their, you know, edgelord, right-wing, you know, griper phase, and they went further right, and, you know, towards, like, Stephen Molyneux and all them. So I went left when I saw more or less how people were starting to react to, like, social change and, like, social movements all love that (laughs) but um yeah it was it was honestly first it was the social things it was social issues because no one in media's caucus was receptive to anything i would try to post in there about social issues i didn't get a single one of my posts approved i was was gonna say i was gonna ask if you got anything approved because because i know they're very uh they're very tough with that they really they really don't let a lot through if it's gonna like cause controversy because there was that whole thing recently uh for anyone who doesn't know, we're running a March Madness bracket for who's the worst Fakertarian in our Fakertarians discussion group. And there's a guy uh, who we've actually had in this podcast, uh, Jacob Winograd. And oh. he he wanted he's a moderator of the Mises Caucus group, but we've had like good discussions with him before. Mm-hmm. And he he really wanted to uh, win like at least a few rounds of the bracket. So he was like, if you guys get me to the Sweet Sixteen. I'll post a meme of your choice in the Mises Caucus group and it'll get past post approval. And what did we post? It was something like, it was like that Andrew Yang meme. It's like dumping stuff into someone's mouth. And it said like me. Yeah. It was like me, a proud Mises Caucus member. And then it was like BLM and trans rights or something like, so it was like supposed to be like a pro, uh, that kind of stuff meme. And he wrote this like long explanation. Like, I don't even think anyone in like, would find it in, in Mises. A lot of people in Mises, I don't even think would find it that objectionable what he said, but because he, he explained it well, but it was up for 15 minutes before it got deleted. Holy shit. <laughs> and he's a moderator. So it's not like, oh, it's not like it's some random dude. It's like he posts it and someone who I, I might know who it was, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to stay a little quiet. Mm. Uh, took it down. 
But go on, you can go. You can go back to talking about that. I just wanted to interject a little bit. I have a question, though, a, a genuine, honest question for my comrades here. Why would anyone want to win the Fakertarians bracket? Why would you want to win? It's <laughs> a good question. Well, I'm sorry. It's mean, just listen. I, listen granted, every every comment on on the posts are what are we voting for? So <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> are we supposed to vote Drew for the one quotas. we like or the one we don't like? Yes. And it's like, Drew no, you're quota. supposed to vote okay. for a female name. Yeah, people <laughs> voted for me. Female name. People. A couple of people voted for me in that bracket, and I think it was, uh, oh gosh, what a, I forget who it was. Somebody said, like, I'm pulling for you in this one, and I was like, I don't know if I should be offended. Do you think well, I'm worse that, than Jeff Wood? We've got that one guy in the group, uh, Josh Hilditch. I don't even know what, like, his political philosophy is. I think something on the left, but he's he, an egoist, I believe. Okay, yeah, he's wanted to win it so bad that he's, like, invited a bunch of his friends into the group, and they're all like, they're all like, we're taking it home, like, in the comments and shit. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just in like the, how, he's in the just like how Cardi B took home that poll against Candace Owens the other day. Yeah, no, I saw that. The other day. <laughs> Good comparison. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get back to we can we'll go off topic a lot more, but let's get back to Daniel's <laughs> yeah. uh, political journey. Yeah, so George bit. George Floyd, the you know kind of the split, the you know, which I mean I suppose really brought social issues to the forefront of the world. I mean just because of, of how big of a, you know, of a movement it sparked. Um, so I suppose, you know, why, why wouldn't you talk about social issues? They're important right now. You know, it's what people are talking about and it, ignoring them isn't necessarily the best thing to do either. So, nope. so, so yeah, what, um, so yeah, kind of what, what was your journey from, from there when you were like, okay, I, there, you know, I got, I got to look into more, I got to do, something else besides Austrian economics, Ron Paul gold standard. It's just such a tired charade, like chewing over the same talking points for like four or five years. For me, it was four or five years. For them, it was probably like 12 years plus they've been doing the Ron Paul shtick. And it's just like, it's a corpse of a political movement. Like you're not going to gain anything with that. And like, personally, when I was trying to post, let me just get back into like the whole me trying to get post approved in there. I would try to like post, like stuff dunking on like conservatives and they're like, you know, memes and stuff like trying to get it approved. Like there was one meme I was trying to send through there. It was like a meme, like, like dunking on like Ben Shapiro, I think it was, and it wouldn't get approved. I was like, really? We're going to be defending Ben Shapiro now? Like, okay. It was just like one of those, like, you know, like one of those like turning point USA memes where it's like, <clears throat> Hey liberals, you say you're for equality. If you don't like when police beat everyone up equally. <laughs> Curious. Well, there's some there's some people in that group that are apparently okay with police beating people up. Like there was that one guy we drew attention to, who said in reference, I think it was in reference to uh, the Rand Paul thing, where like there was like a crowd of people yelling at him or whatever. He said that I, I think I think Dave Smith said something about how the police should like shut this down by any means necessary. Yeah, and he then, did. I remember that. And, yeah, and then this guy jumped on top of it to say something like. The, the cops should be clearing the streets with body bags. And we I remember we posted about it, and the Mises Caucus didn't take any action on the guy. He's still in the group. Um, and he even said, like, he, he made some, like, snide comment or whatever, like, oh, am I allowed to be in here still, like, on a Mises Caucus post? And Heist was like, yeah, Fakertarians wants, wants us to kick people. This isn't how we're going to do it or something. So they had to they had to keep in the guy who wants to clear the streets with body bags to own the libs. 
well, that's basically just a representative of where they are in like libertarian philosophy anyways. They're the, they're the paleo assortment of libertarians that uphold late Rothbard and everything he did. So it's like, it's self-fulfilling prophecy, really. I'm not surprised. Once I looked into it more, I got to say, I didn't know about the paleo stuff. Like, I was just like, I was into it, but I wasn't into it enough to yeah. filter out the paleo stuff. Like, I had to look into, you know, like, right-wing right, right wing populism and, like, Jeff Dyson and his blood and soil shit and, like, all of that. It's just all the red flags. The Ron Paul meeting with Don Black in, uh, I think, 2008 or something like that. Um, yeah, was, like, I, I knew about the newsletters, but I didn't know, like, for a while, I didn't know, like, the full extent. Like, fucking Gary North, the oh guy who wants, to, who wants to stone Rock. gay people and... right. Getting an award from the Mises Institute. The Rothbard Rockwell report, that whole mess. Um, that's where that's where he was saying the Mighty Ducks 2 was anti-white for anyone who hasn't seen that article. It was, it's um, it's Pat, a hilarious it's, article. Pat Buchanan. Um, uh, David, David Duke. David yeah, Duke. That one article, the, the Rothbard article. David Duke. Yeah. Isn't that what it's titled? Yeah. No, that's so. what, that was the first line of it. I believe... Was it right? The article name might have been right wing populism, but it starts with so they finally got David Duke and everyone's like, well, he's not saying he's for David Duke. He's just saying the media was unfair to him. (laughs) What what I never understood about that was, okay. so Murray Rothbard, he has a similar background to me. He, I believe, is a Russian Jew from New York City. That's literally me. And he's defending uh, like literal, like literal neo-Nazi, like no like there's no substitute for what he is he's a neo-nazi that was the point of the strategy it was like they were trying to reach i think they called it like redneck outreach or something like that yep. they were like trying to reach like the worst people to like try to because they they didn't think like their prior outreach to other groups worked so they but we're still feeling the effects of that today like that's that's where this alt-right pipeline stuff comes from well, is that that revived. paleo strategy because hoppa was a was Rothbard's protege at the time of like the paleo strategy. And he's basically a continuation of that. And the yep. Mises Institute is trying to continue that right now. Like that's why they've picked up on the whole uh, Lou Rockwell, especially he's been, he's had all that stuff in the past few years about like being anti-open borders and stuff. And if you go to his site, he'll complain about like the migrants coming in or some shit like that. Like we, we still feel the effects of this today. It's kind of crazy when you realize that like, Technically speaking, the libertarian movement started the alt-right. Like, it really did. Like, Rothbard yeah. and his late paleo strategy was what led to all this shit we see today. Richard Spencer was a Ron Paul fan. I mean, I'm not... I, I'm not yeah. I'm not I saying mean, that Ron Paul is, like, together. a white nationalist or something, like, by any means. But, I mean, like, pandering to that group in general brought this pipeline around. It's right. actually funny that they, like, Hold up Ron Paul on every point he makes, except when he says racism is collectivism. Oh, I know. That's <laughs> oh, I hate that talking point. I hate that talking point, bro. I hate it so much. <laughs> Why? Because it's, it's like, it's, it's, it goes back to like Ayn Rand. I believe she was the first one to say it. And I believe that just like, it kind of like, is a way to get people to associate racism with the left because libertarians are like the left is collectivism. So racism is collectivism. Therefore racism is leftist. You know what I mean? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, it's I, like, your argument, I, I, I don't think it necessarily has to be applied that way. Um, 
I think racism is definitely a, a species of collectivism. And I think that uh, if, if you want to talk about embracing collectivism, you can see it on the, the mainstream left and the mainstream right today in full force. Absolutely. I, th I think it's inescapable at this point. Yeah. Collectivism shouldn't be a dirty word to a libertarian because libertarianism sits at the intersection of individualism and collectivism. If it was a purely individualist philosophy, we would all advocate going off and living in the woods and being feral, yet we still want to belong to some sort of a society. So the true question of libertarians is where do my rights meet yours? How do I ensure that I don't infringe on yours and we all have space for each other? So I, I don't understand why collectivism is such a dirty word. It's part of what we do. It's, we're in a fucking political party. Isn't that inherently collectivist, <laughs> being in a political party? Well, and Anything that, collectivist like, if you really, yeah, like, exactly. I mean, I my thing is, is like, the, the, right will, the right will require for an ANCAP society a collectivist, like, charity system of taking care of the poor and everything because it's what they advocate all the fucking time, so. I think it depends you know. on what you define collectivist as it's, it's a definition yeah that's the problem yeah it is a definition thing yeah, yeah. right like but like most things it seems to be in <laughs> there's What's no there? consistent individualism in my opinion like apart from like the way like the original like individualist anarchists from like the 19th century lived where they were like everyone should own their own business and no one should interact unless as unless they were groups of individuals you're not a, really an individualist because, like, I feel like capitalism itself is collectivist when you really think about it. Like, yeah, it's yeah, very ben collectivist. Benjamin Tucker was a staunch anti-capitalist. The the American yeah. anarchists they were like, no, fuck this shit. They were fucking Absolutely. socialists. They were <laughs> the exactly. individualists. Well, Spooner was in favor of absentee property, from what I remember. He was. Yeah, he was well, one of the exceptions among them. Yeah. And yeah. that's a tough one for me to chew on, too. I actually had, back when Dankertarians was a thing, I had arguments with my left-leaning comrades there. I was like, well, there's a line, right? Like, why? Th there's some folk there who seem to think if you walk 10 feet away from your property, it's abandoned and it's not yours anymore. And I'm like, well, I could envision situations where one could morally hold land absentee and then return to it someday or, you know, use it for family. or Like, I, I don't necessarily think it's as simple as if you're not there, it's not yours. No, 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 that's nonsense. I don't think of it like that at all. I feel like there should be, like, logical grounds, like, uh, terms of abandonment for community. That's logical. Like, no one's saying that, like, you go to the grocery store and come back to your house anymore. But, like, <laughs> if you haven't lived at the house for 10 years and it's decrepit, I don't think you have the claim to that property anymore. I just so don't I, think, I, I don't I think that's reasonable. I have a question for you on this, then. Um, since I wanted to get into this at some point, just to have a discussion, because <laughs> I'm I'm still I still consider myself an ANCAP, so I wanted to see kind of where you stand on this. Like this, mm. consider this a hypothetical, because I can I know we okay. can talk about how um, how there's some bad uh, like there's some like original sin in property right now. Like that's a whole different discussion. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But let's say I build. A house like maybe me and some of my friends build a house like they're they're doing it as a favor for me so let's just say or okay. i build it myself should i be able and should i be able to uh rent it out to someone like let's say i build it and then my friend is like hey i'd like to live there i'll pay you whatever like a certain amount of money a month and i'll live there like is, is that okay with you or or what oh no i'm not i'm not against you know voluntarily you know renting stuff out i'm not saying okay. that people should be banned from uh renting yeah. stuff out i just believe that given the proper conditions such a market exists within a status system that rents without the well 
given occupancy and use property norms, I feel like rent would subside almost immediately without the state if we were to start enacting like 10 year laws for like land ownership or like a 10 year policy. Like if you can, if you enclose land, um, it's only yours if you occupy it, something like that, like a system that would change our current structure of property norms. I'm not against people, you know, voluntarily renting out their properties right now because, you know, that's, but wouldn't strict wouldn't strict occupancy and use kind of like invalidate, even allowing someone to rent? No. No. I, if, I don't if, think so, no. Here's the thing. There's two different classes of landlords here, and one I find pernicious, the other not so much. They're called mom and pop landlords. They're these folks that just have one or two properties and they, you know, they yeah. might spend a time renting this out and then eventually use it themselves one day. These folks are not necessarily a massive and evil danger to the economy. So I don't go around saying rent is theft because people think, oh well you hate this old lady who's trying to, you know. No. But the problem with allowing property to be held property to be held by investors rather than the people who require it for for occupancy and use is that you create financial incentive for the propertyed class to come into the possession of everything and it leaves mm -hmm. the occupants at the mercy of those who can afford to buy everything this is a finite resource there's only so much space and if you're telling me that investors get first crack because they've got the capital to drop on all this land i mean you're telling me that people deserve to be homeless there are more people sleeping on the streets than and we have houses for all of them like it's it, the Can I add a we, point really quick? Please. There's a higher demand right now for people owning a second house than there is for people buying a first house. What does that tell you? There's people who literally are just buying up houses that they can while, you know, millions of people are homeless. Absentee property ownership, and like, especially in America, is out of control, in my opinion. You're so right. What's your, what's your solution to that? I'll, I'll direct this towards either of you. What's your solution to that while the state exists? Like, should people not be allowed to rent? Like, or should it just be like a a thing for the future, like relaxing government? Private banks should not be entrusted to handle mortgages for the public anymore. We should not allow for banks to own all the property. At very least, that should be moved away from the control of, of people who have financial incentive to charge people and then evict them and then sell the house again. But couldn't you Absolutely. argue that's a violation of like someone's right to contract? I don't believe in the rights of corporations or banks. I believe in the rights of individuals. What if an individual at a bank and an individual who uh, wants to contract with them? This is the distinction I find valuable because if you, as John, as an individual, own two houses and want to use one of them temporarily as a rental property, I respect that. If you, as a massive capital investor, tell me that you have the right to hold all of the inhabitable land in artificial scarcity that you may extract wealth from the public at large, no, I don't think that's your right. I don't think that's the same thing. Well, and there you go. There, there's, there's that the artificial scarcity. I mean, there's, there's so much artificial scarcity in housing that mm -hmm. it just, it, it completely fucks up the the entire market to to the point where you know it's kind of like healthcare. You look at it and go, I, I, I don't even know what to do with it at this point. I mean, you could argue, you could argue that some of that's a product of the state with zoning and right. yeah. like that. Yes. Right. The state was zoning and lobbying and, um, you know, the, the, the classic, well, I mean, the classic NIMBY. Um, <laughs> I just don't think the solution to that would be more state, like saying, no, you can't make this contract. I, I what would you propose? I mean, I'd start by rolling back zoning restrictions and go from there. 
I mean, and I mean, rolling back the uh, the benefits government gives to businesses in general. It seems a very simple solution to me. If you could provide a baseline, if if you could give me a bottom, a floor of dignity uh, from below which no human will fall, guarantee me housing. Make sure that every person sleeping on the street at least has an option to some sort of housing solution. Even if it's one of these tiny houses we see built, you know, give them that baseline of dignity and I will no longer be concerned with what people do with their properties. If you want to go rent out big things, if you want to rent a luxurious condo or whatever, that's not my business. In fact, I think there is a market for temporary housing. People like Airbnb. People like having a spot to stay in a place they don't plan to stay long. So I'm cool with that market, but so long as it exists and we don't have that baseline, you're telling me that the right to profit supersedes the right to shelter, and I disagree. Well, I mean, I like the idea of doing that through like mutual aid and things like that. I don't like the idea of doing that through the state. I don't think expanding their power is gonna be a good idea. I, I, think would, I would never propose. That, well, I, I think naturally that homesteading and occupancy and use kind of just kind of combine in practice. They both need a threshold for what is abandoned property so even even in homesteading you need to decide at what point is something abandoned yeah and of course yeah I there's think gray area there those, for sure yeah yeah no both of them have to come to that same conclusion i think in practice they both kind of unfold that way and when it comes to like present day and we're talking about you know all these people with mortgages and stuff like that these banks they, they're all in bed with the federal government so i have no problem with say you know mortgages being wiped and stuff like that that being gone because that's that's an artificial state state created environment which in which all this exists but say we are in a free society we have finally have a stateless society i think homesteading rights are they they're, they're something that naturally unfolds people want to claim a piece of what they've what they've you know they've put work into they've created this they put a house on this but I think it, at some point it decays if you don't use it. So there is kind of some wiggle room between occupancy and use and homesteading. Right. And you've and made a wonderful point. There's something really important to touch on there, which is specifically that most of the land in most of these states is owned by the government. At least 50% of California is held by the federal government. You have no right to move there. Um, was Nozick wrote of, or not occupancy and use, uh, uh, justice and acquisition, the concept that property is only just if it is justly acquired and everything held by the federal government is stolen stolen from natives stolen from mexicans so by what right do you tell me that i can't just move and go build a house yeah i'm, I'm with you there get the state out of my fucking way absolutely yeah they so own they own if, most if of the west we, if we dropped zoning and if we dropped all of the bs with regards to how to build your own house i mean housing is an absurdly solved dilemma in the 21st century. Like it's a box with electricity, running water and, and heating and cooling. And, and we can make that with wood or metal or cement or, you know, any number of materials. It's not fucking rocket science and the government's in the way. And I think we can all agree with that one. And, and it's not just because they won't let you build a house. It's also, I mean, churches want to let homeless in and they're told no. Like, what's that even? Yeah, and there's, 
Like, there's laws like, against feeding homeless people too. Yeah, like, that, that, that's you can't feed the homeless. Okay, well, no, no, the state is definitely in the way. You make it impossible okay. to house the homeless, but then you also make it impossible to even provide some basic charity to the homeless unless it's half the time a government-run shelter. God forbid it's not the state handing it out. You know, right? The state definitely tracks down on mutual aid organizations. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's it sucks because. Yeah, you've got the state in the way from preventing people from owning things. You've got the state in the way from preventing people to just giving away things to help. It's just absolutely ridiculous. It's a like a 20, 2020 convention moment. Like, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just yeah. The government so we can, needs to get out of the way. I mean, what, can we talk about? Can we talk about like that's the kind of land that the federal government does own? Because like this is a topic I've talked about before. I sure. remember when Spike shared that graphic about uh, how much land the state owns in like the southern part of the country towards California, Nevada, like the the rocky like mountainous regions. I have a question: How much of that land is actually inhabitable, and how much of it is actually natural parks and just rocky terrain that is impossible to build on? Because this is a point that Spike actually got a little bit of blowback on when he posted it. So I am surrounded by federal land and state land, and I cannot buy property out in the desert for myself to build a house on. It's perfectly habitable. People have been doing this for centuries. Before the before Europeans had come, it was the natives had lived here. They had farmed all the same land, and now it's owned by the feds and by the state, and nobody can settle on it. And all of this land is perfectly usable. Like Phoenix is in Las Vegas and El Paso. They're perfect examples that you can build in the desert. I mean, there's no reason I can't build a house in the desert. I can't graze animals. People have been doing it for centuries. No, I, yeah. I agree. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's not an issue. I definitely agree that there is to an extent, like the federal government owning land is a problem. But if you look at the concentration of land that they do own, it's in the southwest of the country. And we have housing shortages across, like, we have people homeless across the country and we have, you know, a huge, um, I wouldn't say epidemic, but like a huge thing of like people like Bill Gates owning massive tracts of land in every state. Bill Gates, Bill Gates owns like hundreds of thousands of acres across the country that he just owns, monopolizes. Land is a scarce resource. It's, it's one of the things that classic liberals back in the day and like a lot of even politicians back in like the early 1900s were stressing about about how land specifically should be treated differently than your average commodity because it's naturally scarce. And I stand by it completely. That's why Henry George had the theory of the single tax to keep land in circulation so that it was in use. Well, I would say like big tracts of land that are not actually being homesteaded and used, they're, they're not valid you know, claims. Like if, if you bought it from the federal government and the federal government just stole it from somebody else, that's not a valid claim. Or say you pick up this big piece of land and you never do a damn thing with it. You haven't homesteaded it to me. So it's like I and even even say you got a legitimate transfer from somebody that did homestead it. I think if you don't use the land for X amount of time, even in homesteading, we have an abandoned property norm. You know, where the society has to come to that. So something like hundreds of acres of or even thousands of acres of wilderness that have never been touched. How can you claim that you you own that if you've never done anything with it? And further, see. This is where I come up against a lot of my friends on the right because to them a lot most human rights are rooted in property rights but I question 
how a temporary creature who will walk this planet for no more than a hundred years can lay eternal posthumous claim to a plot of dirt. By what right do you own the Earth? If anything, the Earth owns you, son. We are we are here to protect this shit. We're here to do our best with it and make sure we, we don't fucking own it. You're barely here. You're a fucking blip in history, man. So wh why do you get to fucking hold land forever and pass it down to your children's children's children? I rather think this is the common inheritance of all mankind. You don't get to keep it from me, especially well, not yeah. for profit. I'd say that it's about the whole thing of mix well, in an ideal situation. It's about the whole idea of mixing your labor with it. Like if you build a house, it's not just like barren land. It's like you've built something upon it. Can you I question your house. you on that? Can I question sure. you on that for a second? Yeah. The whole non-provisional Lockean land rights that Rothbardians and like right libertarians uphold. What is an adequate justification of labor mixing? What do you consider a right, like, um, amount of labor mixed into the land? If you, I'm going to straw man a little bit here, but if you, like, say, dump a, like, a pile of rocks on a piece of land, do you own it? I would say no, but I think that, and I, I agree that that's, like, a valid question. I think that would probably be something that could be decided community to community. Because, yeah, I mean, it is, it is like, I don't like the idea, I think Hoppus talked about this, about, like, you can, like, build, like, a fence around a big tract of land and you own it. Like, I don't, I don't think you'd own everything in the middle. No. Like, that just seems kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I do think, like, in a, in a stateless society, communities deciding that would probably be the best idea. Yeah, it's all going to come Whatever down to social norms problems. come up. No matter what kind of property norms you have, it's going to have to come down to common law. Yep. I agree. But, like, here's here's where the whole non-provisolakian thing kind of interferes with that. We say that uh, communities will decide sovereignly. Well, what if someone from one community is still owning a piece of property in another community based on their, you know, natural rights philosophy? Like, what comes of that? It, it interferes with uh, community self-autonomy, like autonomy, in my opinion. No, there's going to be conflict, and I mean, that's where private law kind of comes into play. Like, there's a stateless society isn't going to be a conflict-free society. There's it's always going to be arguments. Exactly. Absolutely. There's going to there's gonna have to be some way of settling disputes. And I would, I think common law is a decent uh, method for that, but it's there's still going to be disputes. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're always going to have conflict, and I think Robert Higgs makes it the best... Um, case for anarchism when he says like we're not saying it's going to be perfect we're saying that what we see now is objectively worse than any horror that you could imagine could be done under anarchism what we have right now is insane and i think that's a pretty good point it's like even even if say you don't agree with uh homesteading in a stateless society if you had that versus what you had today i mean completely different situation here versus all this power concentrated in the state Two completely different things, two completely different levels of of evil, even if you believe that homesteading was evil. Archie, do you want to chime in as the only minarchist here? <laughs> oh, sure. Label <laughs> 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 on me. Actually, I want to say, um, I just want to specify that as a minarchist. Oops. Um. I just had to clarify this for someone on Twitter, and I, I think, think it's I saw that. a very good point that my minarchism, when I say I'm a minarchist, I take min very literally. 
we're talking a razor thin margin here. And basically it's because if you're going to hold someone accountable for a violation of rights, you damn well better give them a jury trial. And to me, a jury trial is a form of government, period. That's, that's why I hold on to that label. But I'm also against tax as we know it. Coercive taxation is theft, period. If you want to voluntarily fund a government, that's what we would be talking about under my version of minarchy. Okay, I'm announcing today that Archie is a, uh, an honorary anarchist. So I have a question on that regard. So you said uh, you said today's idea of taxation is theft, but like, what's an adequate justification of taxation? Like, what's an adequate amount of well, taxation that you wouldn't consider theft? No, what I mean is, under today's model, it's coercive. If you want to call it a tax where it's 100% voluntary, I'm not going to quibble as long as it's genuinely voluntary. You can call it a tax. It's 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 money being transferred from a private individual to a government institution, but it's not coercive in my system. That's so all. You want it fully voluntary. I'm I'm trying to undercut a semantic argument. Yeah, I was going to say, I, oh, go ahead, John. I'll let you. Go. I was just going to say, it seems like a lot of it comes down to semantics on that, and I mean that makes sense because. That's what a lot of language is, but go on. <laughs> okay, I've, I've had the same kind of, um, I've hit the same wall with Minarchist before. It's like, okay, so you're fine with, um, you know, with voluntary funding of your government. Well, what about the monopoly aspect of the government? Would you allow for other competitors or is it a monopoly? And only one entity has the, the monopoly on force. What I believe a government has as legitimate authority is the exact same authority you and I and everyone on this podcast has. So let's say you see someone kidnapping a, a, a kid. You have the full legitimate NAP derived authority to intervene and stop that kidnapping. Government has that same authority because everyone has that authority. It's third party defense. And that's what I base government authority on. It's simply an institutional form of using that authority. So a jury, a court, that kind of thing, rather than a single individual. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, but would you allow for a competitive, like say you had multiple governments over the same area, you have competitive um, governments, we'll call them. It sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> To some All extent, right. that, that speaks to the notion of self-ownership, right? If you want to go affiliate with a different government, you should be allowed. Warlords. <laughs> Is there one central government in this minarchism? I, I would or, say or there's a, a central government, but it, it doesn't have the... I don't think it has the monopoly in the sense you think it does. Under, under my system is what I mean, not, not present day. Present could, day is could, a complete Could it time. use force to stop a competitor if, from, from rising up? And people voluntarily contributing to that contribute to that competitor. Well, what are they? What are they doing though? Are they violating? They're providing the same services, the same services of law and security and courts. Say you had a competitor in the same space 
that was doing providing all the same services as your government. Okay, let me let me yeah. ask you a reverse hypothetical so I'm understanding your question. Um, so let's say the state of Vermont goes the way of anarchy, and then in my county we have multiple competitors. I'm charged with a crime by one competitor, and found not guilty. Then the next competitor, competitor B and competitor C, both drag me into court. Is that a viable option in your system, or 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 am I exonerated with the first trial? Well, I think what would happen is uh, David Friedman wrote an entire book about this called The Machinery, Machinery of Freedom. And I think over time, just because conflict costs money, conflict is expensive, things would tend to be a lot more streamlined and people would not they wouldn't want if you had one organization say yeah this guy's guilty are you really gonna have multiple others contesting it and what happens when they contest it are they gonna fight it out or is it gonna be a legal battle is it gonna be settled in a court in another court i don't i don't think there's an issue with the competitors but what i'm asking is like would does your minarchist system allow for in the same space competitive governments where can your government use force to prevent the uprise of another competitor? Can they stop that that other company or government from-, is, from is that competitor violating anyone's rights? No, is, I'm saying, can they have the exact same So if you have the same exact model as your government, but you have another one that pops up in the same space, completely voluntarily funded, is that permissible? As they're not violating anyone, anyone's rights yes yeah say yeah say they're a clone of the of the government that you envision they just have different prices well i'm not sure prices would necessarily be the thing but okay well i'm just saying like think of it like okay say that they have a different rate that you voluntarily contribute to them they have a different plan yeah okay, they so provide the exact same things but exact it's just, same services you pay a little bit less a month is that permissible can your government stop that government from from functioning and from business? Oh, you missed my answer. I said, yes, it's permissible, as long as they're yeah. not violating rights. Congratulations, you're an anarchist. I don't <laughs> accept the definition. <laughs> anarchist. Just honorary, Archie. we'll stick with honorary then. No, you know what, this, this was a it was a tough transition for me as well, Archie. I came to this Inst whole adventure. An institutional, an institutional enforcement of law is a form of government. If you're going to ditch juries in your thing, then I'm not on board. And if you have juries, then that's an institutional use of law. So does that make me an honorary minarchist? Yes. Anar anarchism, <laughs> is a, anarchism is a condition without rulers, not a condition without rules. You seem to suggest that the mere presence of law and some form of adjudication suggests government. That is not so. Government is inherently coercive and the system you describe is not coercive because they're not allowed to charge taxes involuntarily um and they're only able to provide services uh well, in competition with others that 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 is anarchism. let's let's talk about inherent coercion is an anarchist jury going to always be correct is any jury going no. to be well, i mean right. it's still so, better than so in some cases we will have innocent people being put you know, let's call it in prison. That sounds coercive to me. They're being they're being forced to be behind metal bars because some people said they did something wrong. 
Yeah, that suggests that we're still going to keep the prison system, which I, I, I was going to say. So maybe prisons no, aren't the no best prison. idea. Yeah, yeah. There's no. there's an entire there's an entire field called restorative justice, uh, where you concern yourself more with the rights of the victim, there's not with no one which you would put in prison. No, I'm just saying that punitive justice is not the most effective way to deal with criminality, and we would probably not be so reliant on incarceration. I agree for so. things like robbery, but what about a mass murder? I'm sure there's are all people, kinds of. Are there? Here's a basic question: Are there certain people out there who are unfixable? Yes, it's deep. <laughs> that is tough deep. one. No, it truly is. You can think someone's unfixable and not want to lock them in a cell for like a hundred years. You know, I, I feel like there were there are other alternatives, and Boom. prison is coercive no matter what. And even if they okay, are unfixable, do you know if they're unfixable? What what's What's the alternative to prison to keeping people safe then? Hannibal Lecter is roaming loose because you refuse to lock him up. You are Sounds illustrating like... your point through the most extreme cases and mm -hmm. in some sense glossing over the fact that 99% of convictions and incarcerations are, are not like this. If there's a real severe danger, uh, there's a whole theory about this, like the same thing as quarantine. If there's a person in your village who's desperately sick with a communicable disease that you know for sure will get everybody sick, does your village have the right to force that person to stay in their house? A lot of us would say yes. It's not because, you know, we have some special right to deprive you of your liberty, but because we need to protect ourselves from the threat you represent. So if a person has demonstrated that they're out lopping the heads off kids or whatever, I think you have a really strong argument that that person belongs behind bars. But this ignores the fact that in the United States, most of the people caught up in the prison system are not murderers or rapists or extreme right. cases. They're fucking Absolutely. people who broke crazy, stupid laws. Yes, yes. I think, can I just touch on this for a second? I believe I saw... Out of the system. Sorry. It's all good. Um, I saw a statistic somewhere uh, a couple of days ago. I forgot where, but it was like 90% of Americans have done something over the course of like their lifetime that would have had them in prison. Oh, yeah. Unknowingly. Just breaking a stupid, like irrelevant ass law that nobody's ever known about. It's like, probably more than very... that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've committed so... three felonies today, bro. <laughs> I was about to say, well, in Texas, me too. On purpose, Kevin? No, just by existing, it sucks. <laughs> just you can't you can't keep up with these laws, man. There's more rules than we could ever be expected I, to know. Oh yeah, I think we're all on board with that. What I'm saying is, if we had zero laws and started writing them from the beginning, there are some people we would want to just lock away from society. It might be a really small percentage, but there are those people. What about banishment? Someone brought that up in the comments, so I was going to ask yeah, you about that. Yeah, I agree. Banishment but, sounds good. To be honest, we already filled up Australia. What are we going to do? <laughs> where are we going to put him? Oh, my God. Management's aware well, that doesn't equal the death penalty. Sam Coppinger We, we still got New Zealand, right? We got New Zealand. That's basically like knockoff Australia. You, know you know what's interesting is the British actually put prisoners and, and convicts on boats and sent them to the colonies. So, in a way, we, we were the banishment, the United States. Yeah. Oh, God. There you, there you go. One today that We're, wouldn't equal the death penalty. Oh, Mar-a-Lago. There we go. Palm <laughs> Beach is nice. Send him no, to Mar-a-Lago. Okay. Spanish me there. Eighth Amendment prevents that, Jeremy. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose Mar-a-Lago is full of COVID again. So, um... <laughs> if there were a legit place we could banish people to, and and they wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't equal automatic death. 
that's that's a viable solution in my book. Hear me out. Mars. The Shadow Realm. <laughs> okay. We send we um, send uh, here's here's another idea, Kevin. We send Kevin, up a flat earthers to Mars. Was a fictional movie. <laughs> <laughs> Would they then become flat Marsers? If we said so. like they look back at they look back at Earth and be like, "Holy shit, it's round," which means Mars oh, is really oh, the flat oh, one. Oh, <laughs> oh my god, there's chemtrails here. Where, yeah, the, damn it. where the fuck are these chemtrails, <laughs> sir? That's that's iron oxide rust. I'm fucking here for the sovereign Martian movement. I'm ready. Bring it on. <laughs> Let's oh, do god. it. Sovereign, sovereign citizens. Oh. So, but literally, okay, like. After you I'm sorry, it. I didn't mean to interrupt you. You can go. No, I was just... The the broader thing in this discussion here, it just seems to be that... People... I lost my train of thought. I had a good one. Forgive me. <laughs> I had a whole I had a whole argument, and then I started thinking about my spaceship game. Kevin usually has good ones. <laughs> <laughs> I got some asteroids that need mining, but forgive me. Oh, man. Okay, where were we? <laughs> The rejection of state authority is not a partisan matter. That's the thing. That's the thing that brought me to politics. Is this is not a left thing. It's not a right thing. It's not even a minarchist versus anarchist thing. I think that everybody of every disposition recognizes that state authority is at the root of most of these social problems. And to the extent that minarchists are right, I mean, Archie, you're correct that your application of morality would lead to a more just society. But I, I suspect and I assert. If you follow through on the application of that morality, you will end up an anarchist because that's what happened to me, man. You lose faith in these institutions when you, you realize that every one of these, every law you support, no matter how innocuous, is backed by the threat of death. They killed a man for selling 25 cent cigarettes, choked him to death because he broke a regulation that foolish. So every time I supported a law, every time in my little Democrat heart, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to support this one because, yeah, it's the state, but it's going to do some good. It's not. It's not. If you really think it through, man, the ultimate conclusion of libertarian philosophy is that you cannot trust one man with power over another. Kevin, twenty twenty four. Can I add something? To that? <laughs> yeah. So we're talking right now about how the state is a coercive, like immoral entity, and I, I fully agree. But let's talk about who controls the state. I believe that the state is uh, a collection of. Um, what do you call it? A collection of people and entities with radically different goals. I think the state, you can say, is largely controlled by powerful private interests who have amassed large sums of capital through what you guys call corporatism, which indirectly leads to a huge power imbalance where they control the mechanisms of the state and use it against smaller firms and workers. So... In that sense, can you really draw a distinction between private entities in our system and the state? Because the state and the private entities are intertwined. It's impossible in our current system to separate yeah, it's because... It's very tough for me because you could argue like almost anyone is intertwined somewhat with the state. Obviously, some people are more than others. But I would generally lean towards not giving the government more power like either way. I mean, I like, I don't want to give the government more power, like in a general sense, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want a Vanguard state or anything like that. But I do feel like to restrain the already created privilege that private capital is amassed in our system, 
you do need some kind of restraint. And I'll make a distinction here. There's primary interventions in our system and there's secondary interventions in our system. The primary would go to, you know, creating the, the backbone of our economy, the, the privileges like, uh, let's say, uh, corporate subsidies, uh, eminent domain, uh, transportation subsidies, uh, uh, intellectual property. If you regulate the use of these mechanisms that were originally created, is that an increase in statism or is that a decrease in statism? Because you're, because these companies are exploiting these privileges created by the state, which would technically mean that if they were unregulated, you're technically increasing statism rather than decreasing it. While um, these like, mechanisms like exist, on, you know. On something like intellectual property, instead of regular, instead of increasing state power to regulate it, why not just abolish it? Yeah. No, I'm saying as a contingency, would you rather more uncontrolled intellectual property patent abuses, or would you rather someone put, even if it's not full abolition, would you rather just someone regulate it so that it's not, you know, nearly as coercive as it is right now? Because right now it's a stranglehold on the entire internet. Well, I mean, I would argue intellectual property in the first place is a status construction. It is, no, totally, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that like, um, the fact that it exists to begin with is a status construct. And if someone, let's say, no, let's say there's nobody proposing its abolition. Let's just say it's the best of a worst case scenario and someone is proposing to regulate it a little bit. Would you go for that? I see that as a net decrease in statism because you're, incre you're increasing, not increasing, you are regulating the initial um, use of these state-created privileges so that it's not as coercive as it was before. I mean, on intellectual property, I'd agree because any, like, net de any decrease in people using or people exploiting intellectual property, I would think that would be a decrease in statism. I'm sure we'd have some disagreements in other areas. It sounds to I me, mean, and I don't want to, I don't want to take liberties with your position, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the meat of your question is, would you advocate or would you accept if the institutions of statism through their implementation led to a decrease in the authority of the state, if you use the mechanisms of the state to erode its authority rather than to build it up? Yes, I'm, I'm saying that like using secondary interventions, like regulating some of these really like extravagant privileges the state gives businesses, while not a full abolition of these privileges, is technically would be a net decrease in statism rather than the reverse, where you just let these privileges go like un, uh, unaccounted for. If we're not abolishing things like intellectual property or eminent domain or subsidies, if you deregulate, like I'll give you an example. If you deregulate businesses before you strip the subsidies, it's kind of like um, sending your toddler on a bike without the training wheels off, you know? Builds character. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, this this was something I came up against during the net neutrality debate, and I feel like most of my friends, right and left, feel like I got it wrong because I supported net neutrality from somewhat the mindset you're describing, that this is inherently a statist measure. I am supporting a, a regulation that, that rubs me wrong in every possible way. The intended goal here is that unregulated, we're allowing ISPs to determine what information may be treated with what scrutiny and in some ways giving them control over what we can see and hear. And I feel that that is indistinguishable to me from state tyranny. Private tyranny and state at some point become very blurry. So they are, yeah. that's, that's, that's a decision I had to chew on. And again, a lot of people think I got that wrong, but I was just like, if given the information I have, supporting net neutrality would rein in someone's ability to control the information the public accesses. It's a very tough decision to make as an anarchist. The way I look at this is, say, yeah, say you had a law that was just it was going to be passed that said, yeah, 
um, all of a sudden patents last half as long. We could say, yeah, it's a decrease in IP law. It's That would be a good measure. But at the same mm -hmm. time, I know that the state is passing these laws and I know that there is regulatory capture. And I know that the people that are actually writing these laws are the industries themselves. And I know that's what keeps happening and has been historically happening. I do not trust this mechanism of power at all. And I know it's, that this mechanism, because it exists, allows this stuff to happen and allows these companies to bypass market, the market and buy and, and hammer the consumer and the worker and, and create all these abuses that otherwise would not, they'd not be able to do without this gun in the room that is the state. So right. at the same time, it's like, I, I'm in favor of removing, removing the gun in the room, you know, take the state out of it. But it's, I, I can't exactly trust regulation, especially when it's so huge. And there's so many pages of every fucking regulation that gets passed. I know that there's special interests involved, but right. sorry. Go ahead. I, I suppose, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's the thing is, yeah, you know, could you, yeah, could you use the state to erode itself or to re, you know, or to basically recheck a, a privilege that it, that it gives. Um, and, and I would say, you know, probably in, in a lot of cases I could, see the reasoning behind that and and i definitely don't see the reasoning i definitely don't see those that reason oh well if we're not going to abolish all welfare um then we just might as well leave it the way it is because you know your solution isn't saying abolish all welfare so oh well you know and and i see that so much whereas I see, you know, let's say other arguments of, you know, well, what if we changed it, changed, changed welfare to universal basic income? You know, ultimately, that's still using the state. Ultimately, you know, let's say we got rid of welfare, replaced it with UBI, and you're still using the state. But in the end, is is the state with with a UBI smaller than a state with 87 different departments and, you know, and, and counties and states and the whole federal government funding and you know moving you know this basically giant regulatory administrative um mechanism down to okay everybody gets 500 bucks a month you know what so in the end what's more or less state but <laughs> that's, assuming that it's, that's assuming that it's going to stay at just the ubi right well and that's the thing and, and there's your there's your double-edged sword is yeah. Yeah, there's your double-edged sword is, okay, yeah, I've got, you know, I've traded welfare in for, for the, you know, UBI. Does it stop? Is, or what, you know, what, what, what can come from it or what comes from it, you know, next time around when somebody does something. So that's the thing is, yeah, that, where does it stop? Is this a universal basic income episode? Because I am, I am ready for that. That oh, is God. a discussion. <laughs> I will fucking wreck this discussion. Y'all want to, y'all want to get down on some UBI? UBI so, will definitely, the way I see it is the national progression of things right now, post COVID. I really do see that like it's, it's going to be, it's eventually going to be a thing and it's going to yeah. be used by the ruling classes to pacify people's, uh, you know, people's discontent with the system. You've used the right words. It is, it is the band aid for capitalism. If you want to keep yeah. this, you need to Absolutely. fucking placate the masses because there's more of us than you and nobody <laughs> is more than three days away from torches and pitchforks, bro. Go, go sleep outside and be without food for a little while and tell me how ready you are for some proletarian revolution. Like, I'm sorry, dude, if you want to keep this condition, if you want to keep the hierarchies, you're going to need to ensure that people don't starve and sleep in the streets or eventually it's going to I want to talk about this. I actually want to talk about this. So 
I don't like I just want to make the distinction here. When people talk about welfare and right libertarian communities, they refer to it as socialism. When that's historically never been true. So when we're talking about welfare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> socialism and the government does stuff. So when we're talking about welfare, we got to look at what welfare was used to do. And we got to look at the first welfare state that ever existed. And that was Otto von Bismarck's Germany. Now, if you know anything about Otto von Bismarck, he was not a socialist. He was a conservative, like, statesman, military type who ran, like, Germany's, like, Prussian, like, government in the 1880s. And he explicitly he used the welfare street. Yeah. <laughs> he was a very exactly. big reactionary. Yeah. So he used the welfare state. He used the welfare state to get people away from embracing socialism and anarchism to protect the existing social and economic order in, you know, his own Germany. So welfare has historically been used to prevent people from embracing socialism and protecting capitalism. Goddamn right. If you strip away, if you strip away welfare in our system right now, it will not last long. Like the system will not last long. It'll collapse on its own heels. Welfare exists to protect capitalism from itself. And if you know anything about the new, like um, the 30s and the New Deal and the Great Depression and how, why FDR passed, you know, the New Deal, it, it was looking increasingly likely that we would see some kind of proletariat revolution in America. And the New Deal existed to save capitalism. Goddamn right. I could, yeah, I could kind of. I want to go off yeah. on a tangent here about how I hate how there's all this like semantic stuff about capitalism. Like some people use it for, like, like an ANCAP like me or something uses it as like the market, and then other people use it for a different thing. I, I just think there's way too much arguing over that. That's why I, that's I, why I put it down. Too, yeah. That's why I put it down. I have friends who yeah. call themselves ANCAPs, and for a while I had to chew on that because I'm like, you're one or the other. Like, which is it? Do you support a state system that serves the propertied class, or do you reject the state? And in dealing with some very kind ANCAPs, I'm just like, I just don't care about this distinction anymore. Because they, they yeah. say the same fucking thing about me. Socialism is when the government does stuff. Well, in my circles, socialism is when the workers control the means of production. It has absolutely nothing to do with welfare or any, any of the things that people are criticizing. So I'm just like, we're talking past each other. This is all... Let me, let me, let me elaborate. Let me, let me just, like, it's like those boomer, like, gotchas about socialism. I told my I told my little girl to start a lemonade stand, and I, then I took half a profit. That's socialism. The left is coming for your penis. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, you are. You're goddamn right. Hand it over right now. It's Put on the dress, Rhydoid. Right, you have to get past Put the on the dress. Everyone is half of one. <laughs> this is at the root of my political activism: is the recognition that these distinctions between right and left are ultimately meaningless. That. I think it was Walter Block said that this was the greatest red herring in all of political yeah. discourse is the fact that you're trying to divide yourself into these two camps and pit yourself against each other. But the truth is, it's not about that. There's groups on the right and the left that I reject wholeheartedly. And, and, and likewise, there's groups on the right and left that I, I embrace as comrades. So I see no reason to use this as, as the deciding line, the litmus test for friendship. It's definitely subjective, I'll tell you that. Uh, what's left and what's right depends largely on people's perceptions of the political system. If you talk to the average American, Democrats are the left and Republicans are the right. If you talk to, like, you know, someone who's a groiper, Republicans are centrist and Democrats are, like, fucking Karl Marx. Um, and if, if you, you talk, talk to a Mises caucus member, then Hitler was a leftist. Hitler was <laughs> a leftist socialist libtard, yeah. So, <laughs> my fa my favorite... 
was that meme that went around right after Biden got elected where it shows like jumping three spots in the upper right quadrant, like away from oh, Trump yeah. and over to Biden? Oh, yeah. oh no, we're communists we now! Posted yeah. <laughs> before we got taken down. What yep. happened? Yep. Wait, what's that? That was that was the last meme we posted before we got taken uh, down. Oh, oh yeah. We, we lost our page for a few days. That shit was silly to me, but it's exactly what people think. They don't realize we're in a one-party system. There is no American left. They're like, oh, the left. I'm like, which capitalist party are you referring to? Because they serve the say, same masters. With the one-party system are giving thing. Us Marxism. With the one-party system thing, I just thought of Ogle. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> don't say his name. He'll appear, and he'll tell us about pure proportional representation. Listen, the 420 party... spaceships. <laughs> what happened? Spaceships? Can we fly Ogle away in one of your spaceships? Don't wish that on me. Spaceships is a beautiful thing. I wonder if Ogle's listening right now. Weren't we talking about banishment earlier? No, he'd be he'd be he'd, he'd be, be, he'd be in the spam comments. posting. Yeah, he'd be spam posting right now. Three times now. Uh, he's gonna yeah, appear yeah. in the mirror. Don't, don't say it again. Say his name again. <laughs> like what Beatles. the name Ogle? Oh fuck. <laughs> I you know that... want to add a little bit about that bit of discussion we just had. Yeah. Um, capitalism having the dual meaning, and it depends on where you are in the Overton window, this, that, the other thing. And I personally try to look at the context of any particular discussion and, and figure out no, that where they are. Yeah. So that their words won't throw me off. And I try to discuss concepts more than words. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what I hear you guys saying about capitalism isn't what I take about capitalism, it's about corporatism. Right. But it's the same basic fucking concept is that the right. corporation shouldn't be ruling our fucking lives. Yeah, that, that's why I I didn't object to the word too much, even though I- Right, right, right. No, capitalism. that's why I was- I mean, it's, it's, I mean you, gotta, you gotta learn how to, uh, what's it called? Like code, code switching is, I mean, somewhat, All right. somewhat what and, it is and, there. And what's funny is if you watch a political discussion and don't participate and just watch them, you know, if, if you're watching two people talk past each other, it becomes much more clear to identify when you're talking past someone in a different discussion. Yep. When, when you can take it away from your own emotion and just watch the discussion unfold, and then you take what you learn from that into another discussion, you can actually work it better with that person. Yep. Because it's, it's, it's always concepts that should be transmitted, not words. We need a common lexicon if we're gonna have bot immunity, we need to agree. To here's, here's, the, yeah, uh, here's the thing with that. So. ANCAPs and anarchists speak two different languages and that causes them to talk past each other. When the left anarchists are referring to private property, they mean productive property. And when, anar when ANCAPs are talking about private property, they literally mean their own bodies. When ANCAPs talk about privatization, you know, the, root, the, the, the term privatization was coined to describe the Nazi economy. It doesn't have good, uh, you know, historical connotations. So, if you're talking about selling state assets to a corporate monopoly, of course we're going to be against that. If we're talking privatization in the sense of, you know, mutualizing the functions of the state to become like a stakeholder cooperative controlled by the taxpayers, I'm all for that. But that wouldn't be privatization.
Yeah, it devolves into a semantics debate a lot, I feel oh, like. The whole United States has a, a bad history, if you want to take it to that point. I mean, we're, we're founded on genocide. Absolutely. So... <laughs> So before we wrap up today, oh, keep going on, keep going. No, no, I, just fuck it. I, I, I remember thinking how strange it was that I grew up with this red, white, and blue erection about we beat the Nazis, we're the good guys, and then you learn growing up like, oh man, they based a lot of their eugenics programs on like our research. They were totally <laughs> taking notes from the U.S. Like, oh, we were we were worse than the Nazis at their own shit. Oh yeah, Jewish laws were horrendously based on Jim Crow laws. Not only that, but we had like. In New York City, we had like huge meetups of Nazis in the 30s. Like oh, yeah. they were very popular here, very popular. Like filling, filling up Madison Square Garden and shit. I've seen those pictures yeah. before. It's crazy. Well, we I gave theory and and they gave us rockets. So there are your spaceships, Kevin. <laughs> God damn it! Operation Paperclip ruining my spaceships. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's before that's a joke. Before we wrap up, I wanted to get into like what your guys' thoughts are on political action a little bit and what the or whether we should be involved with the LP and the problems with the LP. So I wanted to start with Daniel a little bit on Okay, on what you I about. actually I came ready with uh, questions regarding this topic and here's here's a big thing with anarchists about ANCAPs. ANCAPs, I'm sorry, don't really have much practice. Besides agorism, which is stripping the state of its taxes and that the very like tiny minority of ANCAP support for mutual aid like Spike, there's not a lot of direct action in ANCAP spaces. ANCAPs, it, direct action, the extent of it is crypto, freaking Bitcoin, fetishizing that, and then um, just relying on Republicans to deregulate the private sector, which is well, I, I like which is something that like a lot of people don't talk about. But when Republicans deregulate the private sector, it's favorable deregulation towards you know the owners of capital. We have favorable regulation and we also have favorable deregulation. So Republicans aren't de, you know, destatizing the economy by deregulating. I would argue that they're actually perpetuating state power by advancing mechanisms that privilege the corporations by eliminating regulations before the subsidies. I mean, I, all I will say as an end cap that I do like the idea of mutual aid and all that. I think that stuff's like great. I think we, I think we need that. And I do agree with you, even though. I am in favor of a lot of deregulation that some of it Republicans push and some of it they don't. But I do think they don't actually care about deregulation in that way. I do think it's kind of like a corporatist uh, viewpoint right. where they'll deregulate certain things and regulate other things kind of. Right. Well, they're not. Nobody's nobody's saying let's take away, you know, liquor licenses, you know, so anybody can go open up a bar you know, as long as you can buy the booze and sell it. You know, nobody's saying that. You know, I'll that would be a good. That would be a good de deregulation. I'll say it. I'll say it. Get rid of the liquor licenses. All right, Archie, twenty twenty four. Honorary anarchist. <laughs> How much time do we have, guys? Because I wanted to get into some more topics. Um, why did uh, we say? Because I know Arch Archie wanted to. He has, he has a debate tonight. He needs to prep for or something. But we can Ooh. talk a little bit more. Sure. I actually wanted to like. I know we were talking about this a little bit earlier about the like the whole semantics debate between you know capitalism, socialism, corporatism, monopoly capitalism, all that stuff. I came ready with a bunch of topics I wanted to talk about in that regard. So oh, yeah. if you if you guys yeah. are willing to hear it, I'm all you know I'm all for, Go for it. it. Yeah, I'm here. All right, bet. 
So when we talk about capitalism, a lot of people, there's many different, different definitions of capitalism. I've heard some people say that it just, it's just voluntary exchange of goods and services, which I don't think any anarchist is against. And if you're using that definition, you can make the case that full communism is capitalism. Watch this. Watch this. Is it voluntary? Is it between private individuals? Is there any state coercion involved? Full communism is capitalism. How are you defining full communism? Well, I'm talking about full communism as the extent of Marx's vision of communism, which is a classless, stateless, moneyless society. Every you know attempt at communism wasn't a communist country, but rather a socialist nation trying to bring about communism, which was a miserable failure because you know state communism and state socialism are failures. But if we're talking purely about the ideal of communism, and if you're, you're going to make the argument that pure capitalism has never existed, you can't argue against the fact that communism has also never existed. I would push back on that, that if you want a moneyless society, choose how many billion you want dead. Because without money, we couldn't run our current industrial society, no matter what economic system you wanted to try to pin on it. Well, the, that, that, it wouldn't just be an instantaneous thing. The goal is to reach post-scarcity. That, that's the Marxian vision. I'm not a Marxist, but the Marxian vision is to reach post-scarcity and reach the ideal society where, current, where money would be rendered useless because we just have abundance and, um, you know, it's just, uh, it wouldn't be required anymore if the goal of markets is to reach a point where we no longer need them, you know? Right. I don't watch Star Trek at all. I've never seen a single episode, but I'm told it's similar to the economy in Star Trek. The notion that there's simply no need. Why would we? Why would we need money? We just have all the stuff. Huh? Never a single episode. Never watched any. And I'm such a, huh? John, either What's Kevin that? or I has to go. Why? <laughs> because we've never seen a single episode of Star Trek. I haven't. To be fair, I've never seen any. I don't, any I don't think I have either. either. Maybe I saw a few like years ago. But I'm told, I'm told by my my friends who are who are just as nerdy as myself that that in in Star Trek they don't really have need of money because they have achieved post scarcity. If you want stuff, you can just well, make stuff. There's there, materials there for everyone. Here's here's an interesting point. Um, most of Star Trek, you're watching a military organization. Starfleet is a military organization. Just and, just to put that into perspective. And Rojava is a military organization. Anarchists are not against self-defense. Oh, no, yeah. what I'm saying is um, the economy within Starfleet is not the economy within the, the worlds at large. Oh, gosh. I'm, I, I admit I don't know anything about this. I wouldn't know how to go into that with you. Because I don't know about the worlds or the Starfleet. I just know... <laughs> the concept of post-scarcity is important to economic arguments because it's okay to say right now this is the way things are because we have all these finite resources. Fine, I grant that. But in the age of technology where human labor is in great abundance and simply not necessary for most of the things that we do, automation is increasingly taking the role of human labor, and we're turning our eyes to the stars. There's resources in such abundance in our own solar system that we don't need to look at the ground as all there is anymore. So. I definitely see a day where money is just not going to be necessary. All it represents is an intermediary between material goods. And when there is such an abundance of material goods that you can simply take what you need, what reason would you have for money? As long I have as a quote in regards to this, actually. Yeah, go ahead. This became um, an interesting episode, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it did. So, um, 
I believe it was Murray Bookchin who said uh, that the idea that all must all that exists now must always exist is the poison that corrodes all visionary thinking. The idea that like I, I see this a lot in right leaning circles that uh, what we have now is the epitome of human organization and that we can't do any we can't conceive of anything better because markets and the federal and uh, ending the Fed and uh, gold standard is just the epitome of humans and we're just going to be uh, you know. Um, starting freaking startup companies for the next thousand years when, you know, I feel like the goal of humanity and even a goal of markets would be as an emancipatory force rather than uh, purely for the sake of markets, you know? Markets should serve men. Men should not serve markets. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're in agreement there. You want a Star Trek watch order? (laughs) (laughs) I will watch Star Trek if you will come play spaceships with me. No deal, That's man. Fair. Oh, That's fair. Hey, Kevin, I'm what not, game is I'm it? I'm not that getting you into that game. I don't want okay. that kind of time suck. I play a game called Eve Online, and I actually have. Okay. The, the fun thing about this is we've we're an anarchist organization. We're basically it's, it's a hyper capitalist, you know, cyberpunk dystopia, and we are trying to apply the concepts of decentralization in in this world. So yeah, it's it's a great deal of fun, and Archie needs to come play with me. <laughs> Come be a space anarchist, man. Come on. <laughs> space honorary space honorary anarchist. anarchist. Oh, that's right. You'll be our you'll be our token minarchist. It'll be great. <laughs> oh great. You tokenized right. me. Yeah, what, um, yeah, what else did you have, Daniel? Um, so since we're on the topic of, you know, uh, capitalism and uh, crony capitalism and all that stuff, I just I wanted to ask, like, just pose the question out there. Mm-hmm. When when would you guys say have we had capitalism that wasn't crony? Where where do you draw that line? Because I hear I hear different answers depending on who I talk to. Some people say it was pre-progressive era capitalism. Some people say before the New Deal. Some people say we've never had it, but they they're they're sure in their hearts that it it would it could exist. So I wanted to ask you guys if you know what you would consider non-crony capitalism and has it ever existed? Has your ideal system existed? I would say that it's a spectrum between crony and non-crony. And I would also say that I don't think my ideal systems existed. And if mm-hmm. you, I'd have to like kind of analyze a time period because I'm not, I've taken some history and all that, but I'm not like, I'm not, I don't consider myself a historian or something like that. So I wouldn't <laughs> feel, I wouldn't feel totally appropriate being like, Oh yeah. 1907 to 1912. I, I mean, there's been issues like, all of uh, eternity, but right. I mean, I, I mean, I think as long as the government exists to both protect property rights and can exist to serve personal, um, you know, personal or, or, or you know, corporate or business interests, and and you know, use that that right of of property protection and um, education of you know of that you you are never going to have you know pure good capitalism because it's always going to be crony when you're when you've got the state when you've got the state involved in in property rights and it's it's always going to be crony someone's always going to get their way over something else and you just you're never going to have this you know pure you know this pure capitalism whatever whatever your ideal of it may be as long as the state's there to ultimately favor somebody over somebody else, 
it's just not going to exist and it never has. I'm the wrong person to answer because I'm an anti-capitalist, but I'll tell you this, friend, it's baked right into the system. Capitalism is predicated upon, it, it relies upon a large base of laborers who are terrified for their ability to feed themselves and acquire basic things like shelter. That is necessary. There is a certain amount of suffering and hunger and homelessness built into the system because if there were not that downward pre pressure on wages, you would be able to demand a lot more from your employers and they wouldn't be able to rake in the profits they do. Absolutely. It's a consequence yeah, of the system. I'll say that like John was talking about it being a spectrum and also, you know, ANCAPs believe that what, what capitalism is, when they say capitalism, they're talking about laissez-faire. They're talking about truly free markets. Okay, so we, we've never truly had that, yes. But I think, like, when we talk about it being a spectrum, we have seen instances, we see glimpses here and there of market actors doing things they naturally would be without the state. Or when people are practicing agorism, or you, see, you have little glimpses here and there. We're not, we've never had a truly stateless society. Like, when ANCAPs talk about capitalism they envision a laissez-faire stateless market so like at the end of the day it's markets just like mutualists want markets it's just it's a terminology issue it is a terminology issue but i feel like um without the state and given the fact that the state has shaped you know economic relations to such an extent I really don't believe that capitalism could exist without the state. Markets would. I feel like markets would fully exist. Markets would probably be post-capitalist, if anything. But I don't believe capitalism, in it anywhere near its recognizable form, would exist without the state. As the I mean, state that, well, that's where upholds. That's where the semantic issue comes in of what you mean by capitalism. Because if if you're right. using capitalism to say what ANCAPs call corporatism, then I, I mean, I get what you mean, but if you're using capitalism to say literally just say markets or free markets, then that's a different animal. I'm not using it to say markets per se. I partly my definition does coincide with your guys, you know, corporatism, but it's also capitalism is predicated on the extraction of like economic rents from state granted titles to ownership. So Damn if right. we're talking like. It, I, you guys are against IP, but that's not the only form of economic rents in, in uh, our system that are more or, more or less perpetuated by status means. We're talking about, you know, we talked about rent, rent earlier. A lot of rent is perpetuated by the state. Uh, uh, what else? Um, I mean, a lot of everything is perpetuated by the state right now. It's so, like, ingrained in our society. I would just like to say, I have never met this Daniel fellow in my life, and I've never heard of you before today, but I am deeply appreciative of your accurate use of the term economic rent. You are just so fucking, you're, you're a breath of fresh air where this kind of conversation comes, because people don't fucking know what the, anyone's talking about, and you actually seem to be well-versed in the literature of both camps. So good, good on you, friend. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks, bud. Um, but... Yeah, so I, I just wanted to probe you guys on this a little bit. So let's say tomorrow the state is gone. We have our current privately hierarchical businesses taking on their, you know, their roles in a post-state society. I feel like the natural progression of the world that ANCAPs want would lead right back to crony capitalism. And I'll tell you why. Because if you guys subscribe to, like, class theory in any sense, you'll know that the interests of different classes often um, are at odds with one another. And um, when business owners will, when business owners want to protect their class interests against the interests of workers and smaller firms, 
they will seek an external power source to limit the power of said workers in smaller firms, which will lead right back into the state or they'll establish an entity much like the state, which will preside over us and rule over us as a private authority. So I don't think that cap and caps like ideal world would end in anarchism, but rather back into the system they oppose. I mean, I think for any kind of anarchism, you would need <clears throat> society to kind of shift towards being anti-state in general, because otherwise, I mean, yeah, you could fall right back into it, I think, in any kind of anarchism. But I would also say that in an ideal and cap society, the powers that be right now would lose power because they would they would lose a lot of their advantages over everyone else. They wouldn't have the same kind of uh they couldn't create as many barriers to entry with regulation as they do right now they couldn't have the state as one entity to control everything like yeah they could still try to control everyone through through private means but first of all that's not viewed as as legitimate as ever because everyone most not i won't say everyone but most people see the state as like this legitimate thing that exists like oh the government they can do that but if like if like Walmart's trying to like imprison you for for like smoking marijuana, people would be like, "What the hell is this?" It's less that Walmart would have the capacity to imprison you, and more that they serve, in demonstrable terms, to exploit the communities where they where they do business. Um, and I think where I agree with Daniel is any any time I consider Ancapistan, the the beginning steps are correct. We agree on the first steps: abolish the state and liberate the individual. When you get to in Kapistan, it looks to me like a state. It looks as though you're allowing corporations and nameless, faceless collections to operate unchecked. In a way, free markets are great. I love free markets. They're not the be-all, end-all. They're not the solution to everything. And in some cases, it is. it happens that the profit motive leads you to do the wrong thing. And free markets don't Absolutely. always serve the best interest of the species. So if we... If we create a society where the free market is all there is and the unseen hand of the economy is the guiding force behind all of human morality, we're going to see more disregard for the environment, more pollution, more human suffering than I think is necessary. Ancaps would argue that the check on things that we would see as unethical would be the market. You know, people don't want to do business with a bad actor. If you have competition that is better behaved than the current you know, the current company you're working for or whatever, like that's going to be a deciding issue is like, hey, I don't I don't like these guys. They're not ethical. I'm going to go with these guys or these I guys have, have a lower price. Three answers for you. McDonald's, Walmart and oh, gosh, I had another one. Uh, these are all, whatever. These all have state privilege, though. They serve to exploit the community and people haven't stopped shopping there. Yeah, Amazon. There was my third. Amazon. Here's the they thing. They have state privilege. We're talking about a stateless no. society. It is the tendency of economies of scale to consolidate power and authority. And so I don't think we can rely on just these ethical shoppers out there to just stop giving money to tyrants. That's not how it works. Tyrants we, control we, everything. ANCAPs would argue that because the state gives privileges to these large companies, because the state exists as this gun in the room to enforce the will of these large companies and do anti-competitive things and write regulations that keep other competition from sprouting up from being as competitive from from things that that also hurt their workers um, their competitors their consumers they can write all these regulations and use the state to enforce them we would say in a stateless society we now we now no longer have that and we now have an open market i think that's, so, that's what ancaps would argue 
my friends on your side of the table would look at libertarian socialists and say, well, for your system to work, you have to trust that every person in your society is going to care enough about mutual aid to involve themselves. And yes, you're right. But to you, I would say for your system to work, you're going to need to count on every single shopper, every single dollar spent to be done ethically. And I don't believe that's not every every single. I mean, it's just another factor in the market. It's just like John was saying that every single society would need this. Everybody, if we if we want to get a stateless society, we have to have people agree. It's up to us preserving that society that is ethical. We have to shape that. Like we're not going to have anarchism without that. My response is that I do not trust the free market to always end up with the most, with with the best outcomes. Here's a funny question. And it's it's beautiful that the uh, minarchist is asking this. If we are going to eliminate the state, should we also eliminate the direct products of the state, e.g., Amazon at all? Yes. Yes. Depends on what a direct yes. product is. I, I agree. Like I definitely agree for like the areas where it's. Uh, where it's obvious, but then there's like, where Raytheon. do you draw the line exactly? What? Yeah, yeah I mean, Raytheon. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like I know Roth- Rothbard and Home and uh, that. What is it? I think he gave like a 50% thing for like revenue from the state or something like that. But it's going to be arbitrary either way. I mean, like, do you do you eliminate? I mean, most people. What? No, I'm sorry. I was laughing at a comment. Uh, Karen oh, okay. said, "Seize, seize the means of taxation," and I about pooped myself. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, do you like eliminate like the mom and pop shop that got a PPP loan? Like, because I, I mean, maybe that's like a ridiculous. Uh, example, they served me but... a bad coffee a week ago, so yes. <laughs> but like, there's gonna have to be like an arbitrary line drawn somewhere. Right. But I, well, I, I do agree with it. Family received a welfare check. They're, they've, they've no, exactly. Of, yeah, they, right. it's like it becomes a continuum issue. So you have to find align what is permissible what is not and as a community people have to figure that out at what point does a company become unethical and too involved in the state and we have to divest them of all their interests and spread it out to the people affected if a and i would say walmart and amazon already fit that description goddamn right if a significant portion of your employees uh are on welfare I think that you ought to be questioned. I think, you know, if, if you have full-time employees who are still relying on the state, that to me means we're subsidizing your shitty wages. That means you're not paying your people enough to live and we're footing the bill. So, McDonald's, okay, Walmart. So what if that's true of a mom and pop store? Uh, how do you mean? Like, what's the distinction? Well, if, if a mom and pop store is, is uh, made of, like, 15 employees and 13 of those employees are on welfare. Doesn't that count under your metric? Potentially. I think I'd need to know a little bit more about the situation, but yeah, poverty wages are poverty wages. Like if you're, if you're effectively enslaving people or not giving them enough to survive, I don't think you can legally call that a job. And we'll say the state has created these conditions where that's all that's available. And in order for somebody to actually own a business, say there are two out of three employees that they have are on welfare because that's all that's available and that's the economic conditions created by the state, that can become like every single business. Or we have to find some other means where you, I guess we'd have to find intent, we'd have to find are they actually harming somebody. I think it's like it's very obvious when we talk about Northrop Grumman uh, or Raytheon or something like that or Walmart or Amazon who use on like they use the state to enforce laws against their competitors and against the consumer 
Here's the thing, John Hudak Sock account though, is like his original like um Archie's original point was do byproducts of the state need to exist? And my thought is if they can't exist without the state, they don't need to exist. The that's that's what I would say is the whole thing. Like if Walmart and Amazon by themselves cannot they're they're like a, a fucking cellular organism without a, a nuclei. Yeah, well, 100% on... They will not function. They will fall, and they will bury themselves. And I think that's A-OK. I was expanding the I think that um, definitely without... The the state promotes hierarchical modes of production, and I I do think that without... I think that the state plays a role in masking the inefficiencies of the corporate form. That's, That's definitely for sure. I feel like without the state, a lot of these corporations would probably go bankrupt trying to privatize security to maintain their absentee landlordism and uh, their um, intellectual property monopolies that they hold. I feel like they would either bankrupt themselves or in the process of bankrupting themselves, they would turn militants and defend their assets. That's how I see it. Well, I mean, Daniel, I completely agree with you there. The only thing I would say is I don't think these most of these companies fund themselves off of profits. They fund themselves off of the financing of debt. And so when there's no financier to handle that debt anymore like amazon's been running on a debt for years and they've never gone right. bankrupt but right. the government just, out of the equation it's like, gone they just turn their first profit ever yeah like you take the government out of the equation i think even for walmart you take the government out of the equation that people aren't going to pay their shitty wages anymore yeah you're, you're going to go yeah. bankrupt because your employees are going to stop working or you're going to have to pay them more and you're not going to be used to that amount of expense. But yeah, I think they would immediately, without the government, go bankrupt overnight, almost. It'd a be lot of these would solve, like, problems would solve themselves, like you say. All right, guys. Well, we've had a long discussion today. I think we can probably continue this another time, because it's definitely been an interesting one, and I feel like yeah. we could go on for like four hours about this. <laughs> but I I'm think we need to wrap for today. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm down to have you on again. We have, yeah, we have an interesting guest for the next one, but we'll we'll put you in for one of the guests soon after that. We'll coordinate with you after this. Uh, cool. I know Archie has a debate coming up. I'll, I'll let Archie plug the debate real quick, and then we'll we'll say bye. <laughs> uh, it's on the Echo Chamber podcast. Um, I don't have the link handy, uh, and and unfortunately, I should have the link handy. It happens. Um, <clears throat> it happens. Yep, I'm I'm uh, learning better marketing strategies. But uh, you can you can Google um, or, or check it out on Facebook, and there should be a link. All right. And Daniel, do you want to say anything before we wrap up for the day? Yeah. Or you want to mention your group again, at least? Sure. Um, shameless plug, but I run a Facebook group called Freed Market Mutualism. Free within, with a D at the end, because we emphasize the freed instead of the free. Because when people talk about free markets, they usually talk about the free markets in the neoliberal sense. We're talking about anarchist markets. We don't use free, we use freed. So if anybody's interested, join the group. Uh, we have a bunch of like pretty significant people in the libertarian movement, both left and right. We, as I, as I said before, we got Kinsilla in there. I pissed him off on another thread and challenged him to join the group. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. And he's actually been, he's been kind of chatty and actually kind of nice to talk to sometimes, so. <laughs> and there was that one time. There was that one time he admitted that there was external uh, external pressure on poor people to work some jobs, and then he went silent. 
<laughs> I'm not kidding. He, uh, someone challenged him on one of his things. Uh, cause like, uh, you know, t- typically like the Mises, like vulgar style and caps tend to make the argument that like, uh, anything is voluntary and there's no external pressure on people to engage in certain transactions or interactions. Well, Stephen actually admitted that there's external force on poor people to join things like the military. And then one of the comments is like, so you're admitting there's external force on people. And then he stopped answering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, All right, group, well, it's, it's definitely a fun one. So it, well, I'm in the group too. It's fun. I'm sorry, John. I mean, I'm in it. John, too, you should join. <laughs> I'm, I'm in it actually, but I just haven't I haven't participated much, but I can start. Uh, <laughs> but I uh, got thanks again, Daniel, for coming on with us today. And uh, to everyone watching, we'll see you in two weeks. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.